0: The 1st century world, uh, 1st and the 2nd centuries of the world, uh, A.D., which took place during the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace, was uniquely situated for the building of God's church. Speaking in relation to religion, uh, there was a good amount of toleration, comparatively speaking. I mean, there were localized persecutions, but comparatively speaking, there was a good amount of toleration. So Christians could exist within the empire as fellow citizens. Speaking politically, the Roman Empire of Augustus was designed to include different people groups. So, citizenship was granted to all free men. And, by the way, it's that same citizenship that Paul claimed that eventually took him to Rome to preach the gospel before the rulers and authorities there. And of course, what better way to diffuse the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel, that is, that God created us to be in relationship with Him, but then we had rebelled against Him, but that salvation could be offered through Him in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for sins. Well, right, that's the message that God had ordained that His followers would take to proclaim to the known world there. And what better way to do that than along the extensive road system that stretched all around the land surrounding the Mediterranean world. You go all the way to the eastern coastal countries of modern-day Portugal and Morocco. All the way to the western country of modern-day Turkey. This road system exists everywhere along the Mediterranean coasts there. And with an expanding country with hundreds of people groups, a major way to unite an empire was through a common language which on the street was known as Koine Greek, common day, layman's Greek, which is the same language that the Old Testament was eventually translated into and the same language that the New Testament was originally written in. It was uniquely situated for the building of God's people, the building of God's church. Now. Many who don't believe in the truths of scripture might explain away the fact that the church was built citing these very circumstances, the religious circumstance, the political circumstances, uh, even the very infrastructure, you know, this road system, and even the very language. But for Christians, since as early as the first century, Christians have been noting that this was not the product of chance or luck or just some various streams of society coming together to birth the church. But this was none other than the plans and work of a sovereign and wise God, who according to Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Having ordained that people would be saved through the preaching and the hearing of this message, So they went about preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Having ordained that his churches would be filled with Gentiles and Jews, all united in the blood of Christ, God used the social atmosphere of the hundreds of people groups in the Roman Empire to form his new people. We see this is God's providence here. God's providence. This is God being intimately involved in all his creation, and especially his very own people, where he preserves all things. He preserves all things, but not only that, he causes them to fulfill his purposes. So he preserves all things, but he also causes them to be to fulfill all of his purposes, not as robots. So we here today are not robots, we make our own free choices, and they are legitimate, real choices that we choose to do. And then we also, or these things also are brought about to the praise of his glory. This is God's providence here. And the Bible shows that he is providentially involved in the rising of kings and kingdoms. So what he's doing there in the first century in the Roman world. As well as what seems to be sort of the general everyday stuff. The goings on, the going ons of his lowly people. And that's what we're reminded of today in Genesis chapter 29, verse 1 to chapter 30, verse 24. You can go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 29, and then we'll go to chapter 30, verse 24. Here we see God's hand of providential care over a man named Jacob and his soon-to-be family. If you're visiting with us, I'll give you some brief context about our series, which is In the Life of the Patriarch Jacob. And uh, as we know, the book of Genesis is broken up into two sections. That is, the history of before the patriarchs, the history of the world prior to the patriarchs, Genesis 1 to 12, basically 11. And then the history of the patriarchs lasts from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of the book, where we look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then uh, Joseph. And right now, we find ourselves looking at the patriarch, Jacob. we saw there in previous weeks, That Jacob was on the run. As he took off, he had two tasks on his mind. Number one, don't get got. Don't die. Number two, find a wife. So he had a brother who wanted to kill him because what Jacob had done in his sin is he had sort of stolen, not sort of had stolen, he very clearly had stolen a birthright from his older brother. That was natu- This birthright was naturally going towards the oldest, according to social custom. But instead of waiting for God's timing, as God had prophesied that the older brother would serve the younger, instead of waiting for God's timing, he goes and he straight up cheats his brother out of this birthright and then eventually out of a blessing by lying, conniving. Him and his mother pulled a fast one over the blind old man, his, their father and the brother. Uh, but but his mother, knowing that one brother wanted to spill the blood of her own beloved son, the one that she particularly loved, uh, she came up with the plan to get her son out of there. And most not likely, not wanting to bring up the real reason for why he had to get out of town, it seems that she brings up a secondary reason to uh, the father Isaac. Jacob needs to find a wife. So Jacob flees, as we are told in the previous chapter. And though alone and discouraged, God graciously draws near to him and gives him the promises of Abraham. That I will make you someone from your line to be a blessing to the world. Many people are going to come from you and I'm going to give you a land. Those three things make up the covenant with Abraham that God graciously gives Abraham and then passes to Isaac. And then now this covenant has already passed to Jacob. But unfortunately, what is a mark on Jacob's life here, while God draws near with unconditional promises, Jacob responds with conditions. It's not shouting with jumps of praise, but conditions. If God will be with me and keep me in the way that I go, then this God, then the Yahweh, the sovereign over all, who has flung stars into space, then this Lord shall be my God. So this is not good for Jacob here. This is a growing man, learning to live by faith and not by sight. And as we move from the last chapter, naturally what's on our mind is, well, is God actually going to fulfill his promises? Will the Lord keep them? And if so, how will the Lord keep them? If you're familiar with the Bible and Genesis in particular, you know that the answer to those questions is yes! Putting the question another way, will the Lord be faithful to his promises? Yes! The answer is always yes. Of course God will be with him. Of course he's going to follow through. And he follows through in even ways that Jacob himself did not anticipate. So from today's passage, we are reminded that in all things, God is involved and in control. In all things, God is involved and in control. We see God's providence evidenced in three ways. And this will form the outline of the sermon here. We see God's providence evidenced in three ways. The first way is God's providence in in the everyday stuff of life. We see this in Genesis chapter 29 verses 1 to 20. And here Jacob meets the girl of his dreams. Uh, So keep that in mind, brothers. God is intimately involved, caring for you in certain ways. You might not meet your dream girl, but for Jacob he does. Uh, Okay, let's read the setting there in in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 3. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So basically he's moving towards um, where the sun uh, rises. Anywhere where the sun rises, that is the east. Uh, And especially anywhere east of the Euphrates River, that also is known as the east. And it says there, verse 2, as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Wells are a really good thing in the times of the patriarchs. Uh, Not only because that's how you fed your family, or that's how you watered your camels, you watered your family. Um, but a well is where Jacob's parents, at least where their story of how they got together started. They met, sort of, uh, sort of speaking, at a well as Abraham sent his servant out to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. That's Jacob's father. Uh, so in cultural fashion, fitting for the day, as much as today, uh, marriages were arranged. And so Abraham basically sent sent out his servant to go arrange a marriage for his son Isaac. And that's how Isaac and Rebekah got together. Rebekah came from Abraham's clan. And so Abraham is wanting his son to marry someone, not of the people who were cursed, uh, according to Genesis, but from his own people. So here you can imagine Jacob too arrives at a well. Will he find success here, just as his father did, and like his mother did? And we know something is going to happen based on uh, verses two to three. There, we know something is good. Something good is going to happen because I mean uh, Moses here spends so much time on what exactly happens at the well, right? Not only did his parents sort of meet at the well, but look at look at all, look at how this, the narrative reads that the stone at the well's mouth was large. Flocks gathered there. The shepherds would do this and then they would do that and the sheep, would, the sheep would be watered there. So we're expecting the author, Moses, to follow up on some of these details. What exactly is going to happen here? Well, flocks gathered and the shepherds, who are most likely shepherd boys, they, the shepherd boys would tend the flock by day. That's a safer time for them to do that. And, and, but they all needed to get together to move the stone, right? Because they're shepherd boys, 10 to 14 years old. And they got to move the stone that protected people from falling into the well. And so the shepherd boys, you know, they obviously can't do it by themselves. And, well, all of a sudden, here comes Jacob. Look at 29.4. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor?" They said to him, uh, They said, We know him. He said to them, is it well with them? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. I mean, imagine how excited Jacob might have been. He had been given this specific instruction by his father and mother to go back to Haran to find a wife. But not only just to go back to Haran, but go back to the father's family from Haran. That is Laban, the son of Naor. And it is from that family that there. Jacob is supposed to find a wife. And lo and behold, here comes Laban's daughter, Rachel. Okay, now, some of you guys might be wondering what's going on with this incest stuff. Um, Some of you might be wondering. uh, This here is first cousin marriage. Uh, Now, culturally, back then, it was okay only or under the condition of... Let's see if we can get this right. It was the first cousin... (coughs) of the opposite gender of the parent. The first cousin of the opposite gender of the parent. So you have Jacob's mother's brother's daughter. Right? The opposite gender of the, the first of the parent. And that was okay. Um, and as one commentator noted, you know they probably knew from experience what had happened if, if we went first cousin of the brother's brother or the children, right? There might be some physical deformities. And so even in that culture, they had known, okay, yes, this is okay, under the certain circumstances uh, where people would be born um, without physical defect, at least at that particular time. So this is first cousin marriage, okay, under certain circumstances, the opposite gender sibling of the parent. Uh, Thinking back to God's providence, remember Jacob's condition that he put on God? If you will keep me... So the question we have to ask here is: Is God keeping him here? The passage fittingly reads from Jacob's perspective. Jacob finds a well as he looked up. You know, it's also written there to as if he just sort of stumbles upon these things by random uh, chance, random circumstance. And he finds a well as he looked up. He doesn't seem to know how close he is to the destination of Iran, So when he meets some shepherds. They happen to be from Haran. They happen to know Laban. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden, here comes one of Laban's daughters. So we're tempted to say, "Whoa, well, what great luck here. But that is to miss the point, isn't it? Jacob, who isn't doing well spiritually in his walk of faith, is he learning to walk by faith. He seems quite fixed on himself, doesn't he? I mean, the very conditions that we looked at last time, they all have to do with him and what he's going to do immediately, whereas God wants him to look down into the generations to see God's faithfulness. Here, Jacob seems to be fixed on himself, and the narrative reads that way. There's a whole lot of mention about Jacob, and actually no mention of God in the first 20 verses. Jacob may be wondering, will God be with me? Will he be in control? And our answer is, of course he'll be in control. Jacob himself might not understand that God is in control. Jacob may even doubt that God is in control. But in fact, given God's providence, he is. This is the doctrine of the providence of God. And it involves the fact that God preserves and sustains all things. This is called his preservation. God's preservation. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is upholding the universe presently, Upholding the universe by the word of His power. Colossians 1.17 says that God is sustaining all things. So, so here we see God's providence in that He sustains all things. He preserves all things. But secondly, what God's providence uh, means, or what's inherent in God's providence, is that uh, God causes all things to bring about His determined end. God causes all things to bring about His determined end. This is called concurrence. God directing things and causing them to act as they do. And then thirdly, God's providence involves government. God's government. So here, this is just God working all things out so that they accomplish His purposes. This speaks to His government here. You know what that means for Jacob. That means none of this is luck. Finding the well, meeting the shepherd boys of Haran, Rachel so happens to join them, none of this is luck. Even the things that seem to be chance, the Bible says God is over it all. So Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. That means that you can roll a dice and God is even over that. There is no such thing as chance with the Lord, no such thing as luck. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, you know what that means. That means that you are here at 11.19 a.m. for a particular reason. A particular reason here. That God, as He's preserving all things and sustaining all things by the power of His Word, as God is causing all things to work its way out for His purposes, for His own glory, that means that He has brought you here for a particular reason. Acts 17, verse 26, speaks as well of God's providence. It says there, God determines the allotted periods of when people are born. He determines the boundaries of their dwelling places, the places in which you live, where you are born, and where you will live. And why, the question is asked. Why does he do these things? According to Acts chapter 17, verse 27, the answer is that... You should seek God and find Him. God's providential, God is providentially involved, making His gospel known to you, even right now. This is exactly what He was doing in sending Christ. At the fullness of time, God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sin and the sins of all who would ever turn from their sins and repent and believe in the only Savior who can, in fact, save. Of course, we would expect a sovereign God to do this, wouldn't we? If we know ourselves to be the dependent beings and God to be the only independent ones, of course, our salvation requires God Himself to move and to providentially act in space and time. That's what He's doing for you today. You're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you can be saved if you too would turn from your sins and repent and believe and have this forgiveness. This reconciliation with the one who is overall, the sovereign one overall, who grants forgiveness to those who are guilty of rebelling against him. What a wonderful king that rules this earth. And we see here that God is providentially involved. Even the stuff of coming to church on Sunday morning when you could be doing so many other things. Well, just as God is providentially involved in the sending of Jesus, once again making the case here so he's providentially involved in the everyday stuff of life even now most important thing that God has said on our agenda is that we would know him and that we would get back into fellowship with him well let's continue in the story here. Rachel is coming there verse 7 um, I'll go ahead and read that 29 verse 7 go ahead and look there he said, he's speaking to the shepherd boys. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. You see what's going on here? Rachel is coming and these little shepherd boys are getting in the way of what he wants to do here. So he tells them, look, i go water the sheep, go pasture them. Get out of here. I want to talk. <laughs> With Rachel! Uh, and there's the problem, of course, that prevents them from simply going. The stone is too big. These are probably, most likely, shepherd boys. And as Jacob, you can imagine, the scene, as Jacob is trying to get these shepherd boys uh, to get out of town, uh, Rachel arrives and catches them in this sort of awkward conversation, uh, trying to get the shepherd boys out of there. Look there at verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, uh, he, you know, he just reads as if you know the story is moving forward. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep that Laban, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob responds here, where it would take normally, you know, a handful of shepherd boys. Here's Jacob flexing all of his might, rolling the stone away. Uh, you know, this is the only way to do it, brothers. It's the only way that we know how to do things by ourselves. Make a good impress- first impression, you got to roll the stone away. Don't need those shepherd boys. Interesting contrast here in well stories. Uh, which really does highlight the fact that God is in control even when we don't think he is. So remember a few chapters back in that well story, if you weren't there, I'll let you know. Abraham sent his servant to look for a a wife for his son, Isaac. And you know what his servant does when he comes upon the well? He doesn't know what's going to happen. You know what he does? He prays, O Lord, that is Yahweh, the sovereign over all, the God who's faithful to my fathers. O Lord, grant me a wife for my master. That's what he says. In 24 verse 12. Any praying going on here with Jacob? Any observable dependence upon the sovereign one to bring about his promises to his father? His father's father? Abraham, Isaac, and the now himself? There is none. There's only him flexing all of his might, rolling away that stone. Some of you women might be thinking he has long hair, strapping, buff man, looking like the rock <laughs> but not only that not only is that the only contrast the, the servant right after he realizes that God was the one to bring him where he needed to be he thanked God and he blesses God you see all this praise going about in recognition of the providence of God go to Genesis chapter 24 verse 27 Right? He, 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 here he recognizes that a sovereign, faithful God has brought him to where he needed to be. And he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way, the, uh, way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Right? A, a blessing here. Blessed be that sovereign God who is faithful to my master. No, none of that here in this well story. Also in Genesis 24, uh, you had the servant testing the character of Rebekah, right? He draws close to the well, and then he he goes on and he watches Rebekah, faithfully serves, see how industrious she is. With Jacob, no, there's none of that. Actually, Jacob's just taken with Rachel's beauty. He's a passionate man. As it says there in verse 17, he loves her because of her beauty. That seems to be what's on the forefront of his mind, and actually it doesn't pay off very well. He may appear to be doing well, right, finding the girl of his dreams, but actually spiritually he is not. Look, we'll go back to 27 verse 11 we'll continue. Or, sorry, 29 verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. It's just a familial kiss as we later on see that uh, Laban kisses Jacob. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Probably a sign of desperation there. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, "Surely you are bone of my bone and flesh and my flesh." And he stayed with him a month. How this plays out Look there in 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? So after 30 days goes by, most likely here, he's asking him, Should you serve me for free? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Now keep in mind, this is family here. And if some of your own family members were taking you in after you had just traveled probably a very long time of three weeks just to get to your final destination. And they said, Should you stay for, or are you sure you want to stay for, uh, for nothing? You know, the familial response is, Oh, yes, nothing, nothing. Don't worry about it. Um, I'll go ahead and, and do all of this for free here. But you see a little bit of the character of this man named Laban. He's kind of hinting at that he, the fact that he wants wages or he uh, wants work. Now, Laban had two daughters, it says. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. This transaction is going to be a little bit cold given Laban's uh, personality. He is a shrewd, greedy man, and he technically doesn't do anything wrong here, and neither does Jacob you know, in the things that unfold here. Jacob is just trying to solidify his future, as we know that he's going to ask for Rachel's hand. We already know that he he loves Rachel. Uh, And by the way, this is very different than a lot of the other marriages that have gone on, right? Those were arranged marriages. Here we have Jacob setting his eyes on Rachel and personally pursuing her. This seems to be a love marriage, as some call it. We are told that Leah's eyes are weak, which may have meant that uh, physically her vision was weak. And of course, back then, you can't just... Stick pieces of plastic in your eye and fix your vision. Uh, vision problems weren't correctable. But it's also a euphemism of the fact that she probably wasn't very attractive. Rachel, though, was beautiful in form. That is proportion and appearance according to the eye. So Jacob says there in verse 18, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Right. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that by saying, you know, his wages are going to be Rachel. We're not really told there why he doesn't first go to Laban with all of the camels and the gifts and stuff like that. So far, what we know of is that he has to work uh, in order to earn the trust of Laban and receive Rachel as a wife here. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That's a beautiful sentence there. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. He's happy to serve in order to gain Rachel as a wife. Um, And perhaps he too knew in terms of giving the seven years, perhaps he knew too that Rachel needed to mature a bit as most likely Rachel was quite a young gal here, just like the shepherd boys were, who were taking care of the sheep. So going back to the question of God's providence. Was God with him? Did he keep him? Jacob leaves a family with a brother who wants to kill him and now he finds safety in his uncle's house. And he even finds a fiancé, now betrothed to be married to him. And God did it all. So, if you're a Christian, you may be wondering, if God is in control, does that mean that we are robots? Like, is Jacob a robot here? Is he a drone? And that really, the puppeteer upstairs is sort of just pulling our strings, making us do the things we don't even want to do. As if our wills and desires aren't really involved in the choices that we make. The answer is no. The Bible says very clearly that we still make very real choices and real actions. This is what uh, Christians throughout history have called, uh, have said that, they have concluded that we are free agents. Free agents, meaning that we we actually do what we want to do. So an evidence of that fact is is that we are still responsible for our actions. Uh, So such that when we sin, we're still responsible for our sin, even though God causes all things to be brought about. In Scripture, God is never blamed for sin. He is never blamed for wrong. He, he does not tempt us in Scripture. He, in fact, never does wrong and can never even be tempted. And so there's this tension here that we see in Scripture and we need to recognize it, but then at the same time not dull both senses uh, of the, the, the forces here in Scripture, that God is absolutely sovereign, And that people are held responsible uh, for their choices. And a wonderful example is in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And here the disciples have been let out of jail. And they go back to where the other disciples are. Acts chapter 4 verse 23. And it says there, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. That is, don't you guys should stop preaching the gospel. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and this is what I want you guys to note here. They note the sovereignty and the providence of God. They say, Sovereign Lord, right? Sovereign Lord, who's over all. ...who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them... ...who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... ...he's, he's saying that the prophecies that had already begin been given in the book of Psalms have been fulfilled. Uh, David, your servant, says by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... Now get this here. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus... "...whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel..." Now get this in 28. "...to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." That is the killing of Jesus and all these different people, that is Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the Jews, all gathering together to crucify Jesus, really that was God's predetermined plan... But is God held responsible? In other words, does God need to repent of this sin? No, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up very clearly and says, You all crucified the Lord, and therefore you all need to (laughs) repent. He puts all of that weight of responsibility on the people, even though at the same time, in God's providence, he had determined that these things would take place. So the answer, if you're wondering, are we robots... In other words, that we don't really do what we want to do, the answer is no. We do what we want to do. So we see that tension there. God is sovereign, but yet Peter says, repent and believe. You had sinned. So this is very clear. These things are compatible. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It isn't, only that that, it isn't only that God oversees things to bring about Jacob's marital status. That's point number one. God is also intent on working on Jacob's character. This brings us to point number two. We see God's providence in discipline, God's providence in discipline. And here we see this in chapter 29 verses 21 to 30. Finally, seven years passes and Jacob asks Laban if he can marry Rachel. And then consummate the marriage. Verse 22. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? This is a difficult story to read. This is a cringe worthy story. I mean, it says earlier in the chapter, Jacob loved Rachel. But here in the morning, in verse 25, it was Leah. It's painful to think about being Jacob in this situation. He attends the feast. The implication is that there is drinking, right? There's an untapped bar. He gets tricked, and in the morning, he wakes up to the wrong sister. He's tricked. Seven years of his life gone. Uh, but it's also painful to think about being Leah. I mean, what is it like for your eyes to be so weak, in other words, that you know you're probably not attractive, that your father thinks, oh, okay, the only way to give her away is to trick the man who's going to marry her. That certainly isn't very encouraging. And it's probably not encouraging, too. It's painful to think about being Rachel You're pushed away to the side. We aren't even told about how Laban goes about doing this to Rachel, but... You know, what does he do, lock her in the closet like Cinderella? I mean, we just don't know. And she has to watch her older sister take her place with the man that she loves. But Laban, strangely enough, he is so normal about all of this. Look at 26. He even gives a justification for his action. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So this is a legitimate cultural issue. True, it is not right. It is not to be done. goes against cultural morale to so give away the younger sister before the older. He is right, but he is not an honest man. If he were, he would have told Jacob that from the very beginning. Look there in 27. He says, complete the week of this one, the marital rights there, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel, Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than left, and served Laban for another seven years. The trickster has gotten tricked. Laban is a dishonest, shrewd man out to make a buck. He sees Jacob, and he wants him to stick around. He sees him as dollar signs, helping him get to where he wants to be, and so he takes advantage of him. The implication seems to be that Jacob, who might have had one too many drinks, is taken advantage of. Laban takes advantage of Jacob as a hard worker. Tricks him into giving him another seven years of faithful service there. And this is a pattern with Laban here. Repeatedly, Laban plots for money. So in 31 verse 7, Jacob complains that Laban actually changes his wages ten times over the course of uh, two decades that that, uh, Jacob is there. And then in 31 verses 14 to 16, his daughters complain about him, uh, noting that he refuses to give them an inheritance. He's a money money-grubbing trickster here. But from God's viewpoint and providential care, God is teaching Jacob the consequences of his own sin. The trickster has been out tricked. And God does, though. He lets him understand. The consequences of a sin, he disciplines him here because he loves him. Because he loves him, he disciplines him. Because he has chosen him to be the next patriarch, God disciplines him. And there are three things that he learns here. It's drawn out by three ironies in the passage. First, Jacob must learn to serve his brother before, or serve Laban before he will be served. So remember, God had given the promise to Jacob that the older, that is Esau, will serve the younger, that is Jacob. So he learns to serve here. Not just for seven years, but seven years more. And then not just for 14 years, but scripture says it was 20 years before Jacob and his family leave Laban's house. Second, he must learn to respect birth order. So remember Jacob disregarded birth order when he stole the birthright from his older brother? It's ironic that with this marriage fiasco, Jacob is forced to respect birth order with Laban's act of deceit. Leah, the older, must be given away in marriage before the younger. And then third, he learns the danger of deceit. Just as Jacob deceived his own father, so his father-in-law deceives him. Jacob drew near his father with a kiss, you guys remember that? And he took advantage of the old blind man. Here, Laban draws near Jacob with a kiss. And while Jacob is not blind, Laban certainly takes advantage of him under the cover of darkness. You know this discipline of Jacob is really God's kindness to him? I wonder how many of us see the Lord's discipline as kindness. What I mean by discipline is that God, in His providence and personal interaction with His people, uh, He lets us suffer the consequences of our sins. And that still falls underneath the goodness of God. So as Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You know, from experience, I know that I am slow to recognize the providence of God when he shows me our sin, my sin, and then sin's consequences. So basic examples that we can often overlook. You know, take the sin of deception, right? If we deceive others, and I'm sure all of us can identify as we have lied to others, a consequence of that is people around us won't trust us. And and not having others makes us quick to be offended, quick to feel offended because other people don't trust us. Oftentimes we focus on that rather than seeing God's hand showing us that we are not trustworthy to begin with. It's God's kindness that He shows us. Maybe we aren't so trustworthy. Maybe we need to be honest, just like God is true and honest. Take the sin of being sinfully angry, right? If you have been sinfully angry, you know that people around you need to walk on eggshells. They always need to be careful, never really saying anything that they think. Uh, I mean, doesn't doesn't the angry person feel offended because maybe nobody actually reaches out to them because they know they're going to get yelled at. They know that they're going to get burned. Maybe the angry person pouts, feels offended that they don't have any friends, instead of realizing that they are angry people, that they drive people away instead of drawing others in through our Christ-like love. Take the sin of idolatry and then the consequences that comes from those things at the kind hand of God. And we idolize things only to find that those things cannot bear the weight of worship. Whether it be worshipping other people, so a relationship. Maybe you guys feel devastated at the ending of some relationship right now. Maybe you idolize yourself. Maybe you idolize a thing. Only at the very end to be left broken, feeling empty. After your pursuit for, let's say, money never goes your way. Or, let's say, your pursuit of money does, in fact, go your way. But then, once again, you feel let down. By the thing that you're pursuing and giving all that energy to. You, know, you realize that in you being let down, that's God's personal way of overseeing the events in your life. The events of the world, so that you would have the opportunity to learn that our hope ought not be in those things, but in God. Thank God He disciplines us. Letting us feel the consequences of our own sin and how His way is always better than our way. So if you experience some sort of fallout from sin right now, if you're experiencing some sort of fallout, don't brush it away and waste God's rebuke. Take it, confess your sin, and pray the Lord will keep you. Now, this doesn't always mean... This actually is quite simple to do. You know, If we feel the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, we know very clearly, okay, well, we just sinned. We shouldn't be necessarily mining, you know, back what you did in 1983 is coming back to haunt you now in 2015. Although for some of us, that might be the case. So, for example, if I were to sleep around, um, the Lord, I pray, would prevent me from doing such things. If I were to sleep around and commit adultery, is that sin going to haunt me till today? Yes, it will. And that's a constant reminder that what I was doing then was not glorifying to God. But by and large, you know, do we need to mine our past to find out where exactly we did sin? And God is teaching us presently what we should have learned in 1982. No. We all sin presently. And chances are you're going to feel the effects and the consequences of that very, very soon. And when we do, we need to take it, confess it, and pray the Lord would keep us. Jacob is being humbled, and God is teaching him to trust in God. He has a wife he did not love. His other wife he did love. He has a massive labor contract to a money-grubbing uncle. But God is still good, isn't He? Even in the discipline, as He lets people experience the consequences of sin, God is still in control, providentially bringing about blessings, actually, in our lives. This is point number three. We see God's providence in the blessings of life. And we see this in the next... Section, a very large section of Genesis chapter 29-31 all the way to verse 24 of chapter 30. I'm definitely not going to read all of it there. But it is a regular theme here in the book of Genesis and in Scripture that God still uses bad situations to bring a whole lot of good to His people. From 29-31 to 30, verse 24, that's exactly what God is doing. Here we have the fallout from polygamy. The sisters compete for their husband's love. They compete for children, even. And when they get them, the children are flaunted around almost as status symbols. This is a big-time catfight here. Fierce feminine competition, full of jealousy, full of competition, full of trickery. And there's no question that these are Laban's daughters, because they are dealing shrewdly with each other. There's even some wheeling and dealing for a night with Jacob. But God is still working things out, even in the midst of their sin, bringing blessings in the lives of his people. It starts out with God drawing near to Leah the lowly. Look there in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. We ought to feel for Leah here and and have some degree of compassion upon her. She's thrown into the situation and her husband doesn't love her, and so the Lord... Draws near, and Leah's womb is open. Rachel's womb is not; she's she's barren. It's not good. So you can imagine the competition, the snide remarks, the jealousy that might come from something like that. But in terms of Leah, God grants her four sons. The first one there is Reuben. If you just scan down, you'll find these names. Uh, the first son is named Reuben, which means uh, sounds, which means uh, see a son. And she exclaims, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Do you see that misplaced hope there? I mean, I know people who have had children in order that their boyfriends would stick around. And that seems to be kind of what's going on here. For now my husband will love me. As if that's the thing that's going to move a sinner's heart. And then, and then another, one, another child comes, Simeon is his name. It sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. Is that, that one's a beautiful name. Levi uh, sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. Now this is not good. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So just as Laban uses his daughters to secure Jacob's labor, Here, Leah uses her child to secure the love of her husband. Not good. And then another son comes, Judah. Sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. And she says, This time I will praise the Lord. Rachel, then, as we move on, in response seems to fly off the handle. Look there, verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. You can imagine Jacob's response. I mean, there stands Leah with four children all crawling around her. Clearly, it's not his problem. Chap- uh, verse 2, Jacob Jacob's anger was kindled. He sins here against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? So there he sins against her. Verses 3 to 8. Uh, tell of how Rachel comes up with a plan to give her servant Bilhah to Jacob, right? That didn't turn out well in the past. Two sons come out of that union. And keep in mind, it is so clear that Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and Laban are all going against God's original design for marriage. There, marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is between one man and one woman. But here we see God's grace. God draws near to sinners and still uses them. And we also know too that God will specifically legislate against polygamy in Leviticus 18.18. But that time hasn't come yet. This reminds us that God's grace still uses sinners. Uh, Two children come from this union here with a maidservant. Dan sounds like the Hebrew word for judged. God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Another son comes, Naphtali, sounds like the Hebrew word for wrestling. Now this is not good. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. To continue on, I know we're going quickly here as we need to. Leah, after she realizes she stopped bearing children, she decides to give her servant Zilpah to Jacob. And she bears children. Out of that union comes two more boys. Leah names the first Gad, which sounds like a Hebrew word for good fortune. Verse 11, good fortune has come. Asher comes along, sounds like the Hebrew word for happy. Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. But the low, perhaps, between the sisters, between the sisters' interaction and jostling and fighting comes in 14 to 18. In this instance, you can skim that there as I summarize. Um, we really see that Leah and Rachel are the daughters of this shrewd man Laban. Leah's son Reuben finds some mandrakes in the field, and a mandrake, by the way, was a piece of vegetation. It was like this bulby plant, like an onion, and it had two roots sticking out of the bottom, so it looked like a man, thus a mandrake. And uh, it was known to have uh, narcotic uh, properties as well, it was known to be an aphrodisiac. So it's no surprise that Rachel is seeking after these things, because she is barren after all. Uh, and, And keep in mind, right, there is no praying. Just a reliance on substances to try and get pregnant. There is no praying. Neither is there any direction from Jacob. He just gets kicked off and yells at his wife here instead of doing what he ought to have been doing, pleading with the sovereign Lord. So Rachel says, you know, give me those mandrakes. And Leah responds, is it, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes as well? My son's plants. You're stealing everything from me. <laughs> So Rachel straight up says, Fine, I'll give you the old man for one night. You give me those bowls. Look at 16 there. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. <laughs> oh man, how would you like to have been Jacob? Right? Pretty discouraged. By Rachel? You are traded for some bulbs. And by Leah, you are hired with some bulbs. So she goes out and finds him. I hired you with my best bulbs. Now come in. And two sons come from that union. Issachar sounds like the Hebrew word for wages or hire. God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. How was that for a name? Zebulun sounds like the Hebrew word for honor. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And then they have a daughter, Dina. In verses 22 to 24, it says God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb and gives her Joseph. May he add. Sounds like the Hebrew word for taken away or may he add. (coughs) It's fitting that the story ends with Joseph as that's the main character that much of Genesis will focus on. So there is a reason why I mention all of those names. It seems kind of redundant or mundane, but it's important. And we're going to get there. It's amazing that as Leah and Rachel, in their sin, grasping after one thing, God, in His good and wise providence, is busy doing another thing. Leah grasps after significance, after recognition, after love from her husband. Rachel grasps after children wanting to prevail against her sister, right? It's almost like they want to have children in spite or to spite each each other. And Jacob, it appears, he's just happy to be used and abused, not giving any direction. But from this, it isn't only the blessing, or it isn't only that the blessing these these wives possess are the children. So we know that God is involved with the lowly giving them, in this case, Kindly giving them their desires. God is building his people. Despite all this trickery from Jacob's passion, from the wives grasping after significance and recognition from this competition comes the tribes of Israel. So right here in this chapter we have 11 out of 12 of them. And then in a few chapters we see the 12th Benjamin come along. How is that for God's providence? Jacob, if you recall, is only concerned that he get to his father's house in one piece. But God is busy thinking about all the generations that are going to come down from these particular people, even in the midst of all this jostling and arguing and trickery and deceit. How is that for providence? He sustains them, keeps Jacob from getting killed, provides Jacob a family. This is preservation. And God is working in them such that though they sin, God is still directing their course. This is concurrence. And God is doing all of this to the praise of His glory. That's His governance. All of this by His sovereign grace. Though we sin and don't deserve any of it, He still chooses to use us. Chooses to bring about His will through using sinners who need salvation see his providence here. In conclusion, what is more amazing, at least as I think, is not only that he uses sinners in his plan, but he lets us share in the grace and glory of it. Is there anything good that we might ascribe to the wives here? Anything good? I mean, maybe when uh, Leah says, uh, I give praise to God and names that one child, that particular name here, But you know the only other place outside Genesis that Leah and Rachel are mentioned is in Ruth chapter 11. A story about a destitute woman looking to find another husband because the men in her life have all died. And Ruth finds Boaz. And when she gets back after being destitute and her husband has been killed and her father-in-law has been killed as well. Uh, she arrives back at the city there. And you know what the people, the women say. They say, blessed are you. May you be like Leah and Rachel, who didn't argue over who would have the most sons. Who It doesn't say there, may you be like Leah and Rachel, who were jostling and arguing and conniving and tricking and selling their husband. It says, may you be like Leah and Rachel, who built the house of Israel. They genuinely did it. Was God working out His plans too? Concurrence? Absolutely. Did they genuinely trick one another? Fight after each other? Fight to have the most children? Yes, they did. But praise God. You see how here Leah and Rachel and their history, the memory of the people of Israel and now the Church of the New Testament, we think back and we think, oh no. Well, how we should remember them is that they built The house of Israel. Do you see there that He not only uses sinners, but He allows us to share in the grace and glory of His plan. So thinking about us today in the church here, I'm not thinking about us having children and building the church that way. Think about evangelism. God even now is using us, though we sin. He uses us to build His house. Though we might fear to evangelize sometimes, because we fear man, we fear rejection, we fear of being hurt, uh, we fear of being shamed. Yet He still chooses to use us, even though we might not realize it. Think about First Baptist Church locally. Here we recognize that God might use this little church so that others in this area might come to know Him. We think maybe God would use this little church in our feeble efforts to disciple, uh, to one day produce pastors and missionaries that want to give their lives on the mission field. Christians who see their work in the workplace as a mission field and that they would go out making Christ known in their workplace. All from this feeble little group. That when one sinner repents and believes, it says that the angels look down and are surprised and, and celebrate the conversion of one sinner as they turn to trust in Jesus Christ. So praise God that, sinner uses, that God uses sinners like us, despite our sinful. And He does so to display His glorious grace. Shouldn't this bring us to pray, not just for what will happen in our own lives, or in this generation of First Baptist, but this should bring us to pray, knowing that God is working all things to fulfill His eternal good purposes, with His infinite wisdom to the praise of His glorious grace. Thank God God that we know for sure that there have been those who came before us that have helped us get to where we are and for sure that there will be those who come after us and God's purposes continue. Thank God for His promises and His providence. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You that You indeed are in control, personally involved with all of Your infinite wisdom, with all of your infinite strength, with all of your infinite knowledge, and with your particular shepherding hand that is firm, that is gentle, that is kind, and that is loving. Lord, we pray that we as individual Christians would see that we are disciplined in your love, yet in the discipline you are with us. Father, we pray that that would cause us to be reflective of how you want to teach us about how we ought to repent of our sin and submit all things under your care, knowing that you love us. Father, we pray, too, that we we wouldn't be slow to confess that, that all of our lives and every aspect of it comes from your good hand. So may we give you praise in every aspect of our lives. And, Lord, we pray, too, that we would recognize the many blessings you give us according to your grace. Most importantly, the blessing of salvation that we have in Christ. Father, we pray that we would turn and look to the cross and recognize that where we were just like Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban, sinners in need of salvation, you choose to shower your people with grace. So Lord, we pray that you would cause our hearts to to be moved with great gratitude and thankfulness for Christ and what you have accomplished on the cross. In your name we pray.